Luke chapter 20, verse 27, down to verse 40. This is what God's word says. There came to him, Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what you have spoken so well concerning the eternal truths of God We ask now that you would speak to us by your spirit, that we might understand and believe and rejoice in it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as we continue this morning in our study of Luke's gospel, I want to once again remind us that Jesus at this point is just a few days away from the cross. Uh, We're in his Passion Week, which means that the tension between him and the Jewish leaders has been intensifying greatly. Hence, we see them making a barrage of attempts to corner Jesus, catch him in his words that somehow they might discredit him before the public crowds who were hanging on his every word. But as I mentioned last time, What's remarkable is not so much that Jesus dismantled their attempts in each and every occasion, though of course he did that, no doubt, but it's that in fact Jesus actually leveraged those moments, or we can say he he redeemed those moments as opportunities to positively teach the truth of God. So what they meant for evil, he meant it for good, that he might reveal something wonderful and glorious about the gospel. And what we have here is yet another example of that, as Jesus this time gets challenged by a group called the Sadducees. Now, who were the Sadducees? Well, we see them here and there throughout the Gospels. And well, the Sadducees were a group within Jewish leadership who had some distinct beliefs and practices. Now, I know that we often use the term Pharisee as kind of a catch-all term to refer to the religious elite of Jesus' day. But technically, Pharisee was one of the groups that comprised the leadership, and the Sadducees being another group. Uh, The Pharisees were generally lay leaders who were deemed experts in the law, uh, whereas the Sadducees were members of the priesthood, the clergy, uh, probably due to a special lineage from a priestly tribe. 
And so the leadership structure of first century Judaism was multifaceted and multi-layered. Now, all of these groups were equally in error because all of these groups equally opposed Jesus, but they, they each had their distinct flavor of unbelief, if you will. Uh, a different motive uh, based on their pe- peculiar thinking and practice. And what's distinctive about the Sadducees was this. They were a very by-the-book, hyper-conservative, literalistic folk, so much so that they didn't believe in anything beyond this immediate, visible world. For instance, that's why the Sadducees, one of their beliefs, which was unbiblical, was that they denied the existence of angels and spiritual beings because they believed only in that which was visible and tangible. And as we see in verse 27, one of the key tenets of the Sadducees was that they denied the resurrection. Now, this isn't talking about Jesus' resurrection, which hadn't yet occurred at this time, because he hadn't gone to the cross yet. And of course, they will deny that too in due time. But the Sadducees, what it's saying is that they deny the reality of a future resurrection that awaits all men. It's what the prophet Daniel revealed in Daniel chapter 12, that there is coming a day of bodily resurrection. Some will be raised on the last day to everlasting life, while others will be raised to everlasting contempt and judgment. Now, if you're wondering, well, well why in the world would they deny that? It's written in the Bible. Well, part of the reason is because they regarded only Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, as the inspired and authoritative word of God, which is why they kind of ignored the prophets and, and everybody else. But suffice it to say that the Sadducees, they believed that there was nothing beyond this life on earth. There was no afterlife, no eternity, no bodily resurrection, no last day, nothing more than this physical, material world. This one life, this present age, was it. You see, they were, they were rationalists. They were anti-supernaturalists. And entirely materialist. They were extremely wealthy, which is unsurprising, considering that they were the ones who controlled the entire temple operations, including the whole commercial activity that Jesus had to drive out. And so it was probably their own idolatry of money that fueled such an unbiblical doctrine. Because again, their, their worldview and their thinking was that there is nothing more than life on earth. And that's it. Nothing more than whatever meets the eye. No spiritual realities or invisible realm in the present and nothing else to come in the future. Now let's take a moment to consider what a relevant passage for us today. Because we live in a Sadduceic world. No one calls themselves Sadducees today. But our world is immersed in the spirit and thinking of the Sadducees. Because that's our default worldview. That this one life on earth is it. There's nothing more to come. Nothing after this. I mean, listen, the Sadducees, they were YOLO before YOLO was cool. You only live once. And so, live it up for this life alone. I mean, that's the philosophy of our culture. And, and it's from this philosophical presupposition of the denial of life after death that stems all of the materialism and sensualism and man-centered humanism that characterizes our culture. And it's also from this very nihilistic ideology that comes all of the anxiety and fear 
and despair and a sense of lostness because this is it and it's all gonna be gone one day and I'll just cease to exist after death what's the point of life what's the point of anything I mean nothing matters then uh, who, who are we why are we where are we I mean just a bunch of questions with no answers and it's in the face of this Sadducean worldview that Jesus reveals so plainly and powerfully that there is an age to come. And all who belong to God by faith, for them there is a resurrection waiting where they will be raised to undying life into the coming eternal world. And of course, as usually the case, this whole teaching moment is sparked by a challenge thrown at Jesus by way of a conundrum that the Sadducees here throw at Jesus with the intention to try to stump him in public. And the conundrum, the, the dilemma that they pose was this question regarding marriage or specifically this idea of leveret marriage found in Deuteronomy 25. Now, the term leveret has nothing to do with the Levites. Uh, it's, it's a Latin word, levir, meaning brother of husband. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, what we see there is that God instituted a law in Israel where if a man is married to his wife, but he dies with no son to carry on the family name, then it is the duty of his brother, if he has a brother, to marry her, the now widowed wife. And, and we might think, well, that's kind of weird or undesirable uh, because that's the context that's so foreign to us. But the purpose of this was to perpetuate the family name so that the family name and inheritance would not die out with no heir to carry it on. And actually, this is the whole framework that's in play that's behind the book of Ruth, which is why it was so important that Naomi's daughter, Ruth, would be married into the family clan of her deceased husband, by a kinsman redeemer, one who is within the family. In any case, this, this law in Deuteronomy is what the Sadducees are referring to here in verse 28. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And the, the hypothetical conundrum was this. Verse 29, suppose that there were seven brothers. So the first guy took a wife, but he had no ch ch children and he died. And then the second then did the duty, married her, but no children, and then he died. And then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. And then the woman died too. So then, in the resurrection, what's it going to be? Who, whose wife will she be? Because all seven had, had her as, as wife. Well, this is quite a ridiculous scenario, if you ask me. I mean, first of all, poor wife. I mean, she's thinking, what's wrong with this family and these boys? My goodness, somebody get them some vitamins or something. It's dropping like flies. I mean, what an improbable situation. But that's what people do all the time, don't they? It is a spirit of unbelief that always conjures up hypotheticals and never reckons with the plain, basic truths of the gospel. They ask, oh, but what about this? Oh, but what if that? They're always asking what if and distracting themselves from what is. And so these Sadducees are doing the exact same thing. 
And the whole premise was, hey, Jesus, if the resurrection were true, if there is life after this, how does that work with Deuteronomy 25? How does this make any sense? Who, whose wife is she going to be at the resurrection? Is she going to be split seven ways and be a seventh of a wife for each of them? Or is it going to be some lottery system and only one's going to have her? Or she's going to pick her favorite? I mean, it doesn't quite make sense, does it, Jesus? Was the real thing that they were insinuating. You see, this was no sincere question. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection and the age to come. But they thought, hey, we found a bug in the code. A discrepancy to prove, or to disprove rather, the reality of eternity that we deny. So how about that, Jesus? But the problem with their thinking was that their fundamental premise was wrong. Because they were operating off of this unbiblical worldview, so their whole conception of what the coming age would look like was inaccurate to begin with. And so they made an issue out of something that was an irrelevant non-issue. Because as Jesus explains in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age of the resurrection, they don't marry. There is no marriage because they can't die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of God as sons of the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees raised the issue about what married life will be like in the resurrection based on Deuteronomy 25, assuming that there would still be marriage. But they failed to take into account that in the resurrection in the age to come, it's not going to be like what it is now. There will no longer be marriage as we know it today. And so the whole dilemma what they posed was a non-issue. Now, undoubtedly, many of you are wondering, why is it that in eternity, human marriage will no longer exist? Well, it's because as Jesus says, there will be no more death. And so no longer will there be a need for human procreation. Now, it's not that procreation is the only purpose of marriage. But procreation is one of the primary purposes for which God instituted marriage and family. Because it was his grace upon this fallen world. So that human life, even in this fallen world, marred by death, could still continue. Because if not for reproduction, the human race would die off because of the effects of the fall. But in the age to come, resurrected believers cannot die anymore. And so the, the temporary earthly institution of marriage and family fades away in light of the permanent establishment of everlasting life. And so marriage and procreation is the means that God has ordained by which he preserves the human race by bringing into the world every human being through offspring after offspring through each passing generation. And when history is over, and at the last day, when it's all said and done, God will have brought into the world every human being he created in his mind and will before the foundation of the world. And so at the end of this age, it all fades away, marriage and family. And all will stand before him and answer to him individually, not as family units. Now, perhaps you hear this, maybe some of you married couples, and you think, well, that's kind of sad. I won't be married to my spouse anymore. Well, that better be a reaction. You better not be thinking hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> but let me explain something. 
when we talk about marriage no longer continuing in heaven, first of all, it doesn't mean that believers who were spouses on earth will suddenly have no relationship anymore, and no recollection, and just be utter strangers. You know, it, it's not like when I get to heaven, and eventually I see my wife there, assuming I go first, because I guess men don't live as long as women, generally. Uh, it's not like when I see my wife, I'll look at her and say, hey, I don't know if we've ever met. Golly, you're very pretty. And uh, you look oddly familiar. You, you want to go hang out and get some coffee and talk about stuff? That's not what it's going to be like. Of course we will remember each other. Of course we will remember all of the days we spent together as husband and wife, every joy we shared together in Christ, every trial we endured together, every hope we clung to by faith in God's promises and His commands. But it's that in eternity, all marriages amongst believers will then transition to be subsumed under and unto the one ultimate heavenly marriage between Christ and His church. Earthly marriage will dissolve to make way for our eternal marriage with Christ. All of us united to Christ consummately because that's what earthly marriage was all along. A picture of the greater reality of the union of Christ and His church. And not only are we going to be individually united to Christ in a consummate way, but because we will be altogether united to Christ as His bride, we, His people, will therefore be perfectly united to each other. That is to say that as intimate as the love between husband and wife might be on earth as they are married to each other, still in heaven, they will know a greater love for each other as they are now married to Christ together eternally. You see, only when earthly marriage fades away in the resurrection then we will love our spouses better than we ever did or could as spouses on earth because we will love each other as saints glorified and perfected in holiness. Hence, Jesus says that all who are resurrected unto the coming age, they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. It's not that believers become angels, as myth or superstition would have it, but it's that we are made like the angels and that we will be resurrected with imperishable bodies of celestial glory. We, we will be perfectly sanctified. And therefore, we will be able to love all of our brothers and sisters in the perfection of holy love. Heaven is a world of love perfected and purified in the presence of God. And it's this perspective that ought to encourage our marriages on earth to love each other, that we might picture the love and marriage that has come in Christ, but is yet to be consummated in eternity with Christ. I mean, my goodness, what a future that awaits believers. To be raised to glory and to be able to spend all eternity as perfected saints by the grace of God, the grace which has been faithful to keep us until the end. And then henceforth to be able to rest in the peace of being freed from sin finally 
and forever. And we will all share in being perfectly loved by the true heavenly husband, Jesus Christ, and enjoy the absolutely uninhibited fellowship with him together for all eternity. You see, the point that Jesus is making is that the resurrection of the dead that is to come, it will be a commencement of an entirely different age, a whole new world that will, in, in the most wonderful of ways, look almost unrecognizable from the world as we know and see it today because this world is fallen and marred by sin. But the Sadducees, in, in, in presenting this whole conundrum, they misunderstood and misinterpreted the resurrection life to look nothing more than just a continuation of what life is like right now, as is. But to think that way was to utterly miss the entire hope of God's promise to redeem this fallen world fully and completely. And that's why in Matthew's parallel account, Jesus immediately responded to the Pharisees, or Sadducees rather, by saying, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, the hope of the resurrection is the very power of God to promise, to promise such good news for us. Because it's not just that present conditions will continue in eternity. It's not that your life as you know it on earth will just be prolonged for an infinite number of years with all of your frailties and struggles and hardships. Like, I don't know about you, but I actually don't want to live that long for centuries and millennia in this fallen world that would be miserable imagine all the death you'd have to witness compounding generation after generation you'd make friends with people and you'd be burying them every 50 years if you're the only one that lives that long for hundreds and thousands of years imagine all the evil you'd have to suffer all the world wars you'd have to witness all the darkness. I mean, look, prolonged existence in these fallen conditions is nothing but misery, and it is a sentencing to eternal prison. But the promise God has for His people is, behold, I am going to create a new heavens and a new earth. It is the hope of a new creation, which has already begun and been birthed in the heart of a Christian. But that reality that is within the believer will then be extended and manifested to every square inch of the cosmos. A world cleansed of sin, purified of unrighteousness, no more darkness and death and pain and suffering. And every human being who is raised to life in the new creation, everyone perfectly radiating the image of God's glory, with no more sin to hinder the emanation of holy light. But who will be resurrected from the dead to eternal life? Jesus says in verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. Which begs the question, who is counted worthy? Well, read the rest of the Bible, and it's patently clear. No one, no one by their own merits, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. 
and are unworthy to enter into his kingdom. But that's the message of the gospel. That sinners like you and me can be counted worthy, can be counted righteous on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners. As 2 Thessalonians 1 says, those who are unworthy of the kingdom of God are those who refuse to believe and trust in the gospel. And so those who are considered worthy are those who have embraced the gospel by faith. Namely, those who come to honest terms with their sinfulness, not trusting in their own merits, but instead confessing their hopeless sinfulness and putting their trust in Jesus' work of salvation for them. They are the ones counted worthy on the basis of the worth of Christ alone, His life of sinless obedience on their behalf, and His death on the cross to take the punishment on their behalf, and His resurrection, which He promises which, that will be our destiny of our future resurrection from the dead if we trust Him as our Savior and belong to Him by faith. And indeed, it's, it's Jesus' own resurrection that is a guarantee and assurance to us that there is truly coming a new creation and that we who are in Christ will too be raised from the dead one day, joining in His resurrection. This is God's plan of redemption for His people. It's His great promise that He will truly never leave nor forsake His people. And I love how Jesus points to Scripture, to the Old Testament, to show that this has always been revealed as the eternal hope for the people of God. This is not some novel thing that he's making up. But Jesus says in verse 37, But the fact that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but God of the living, for all live to him. And of course, when they all heard this, they were left speechless by what Jesus said. It's a teacher, you have spoken well. They no longer dare to ask him any questions. But let's ask, I mean, what, what is Jesus' logic here that so stunned the Sadducees into silence? Well, remember, when God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, God said to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, they had been long dead for hundreds of years by then. But here's the thing. If this one life were it, and there was nothing thereafter, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they died, they were just annihilated out of existence and no longer exist anymore. How ridiculous and embarrassing for God to say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, by the way, don't exist anymore. I am the God of non-existent entities. I am the God of non-existence, is what he would be saying. I am the God of nothingness. I mean, that would be self-blasphemy for God to say that. And if there's no hope of life after this, I mean, think of how, how evil it is for God to say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's dead, and that's it. Because then he's saying, I am the God of the perpetually dead. I, I am the God of death. 
as though he were like Hades from Greek mythology or Anubis from Egyptian deity. I mean, what kind of miserable and evil and demonic God would he be to be the God of death? But again, as Jesus said to the Sadducees, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know God because God is the God of life and the hope and all that is good eternally and perfectly in himself. So when God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose bodies lay in the dust for centuries by that point, this statement in and of itself was God confirming Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are with me. I am their God and they are my people even now and forever. Though they have died, yet do they live because I am the God of the living. And when I enter into a covenant relationship with human beings, it is not a temporary relationship just for the short life on earth, only to be dissolved by physical death. No, I am the God of everlasting covenant. And those who belong to me by faith, I love and I keep forever. They are mine. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death nor life. This is the power of God's eternal grace and love for sinners whom he has redeemed. When God redeems sinners, beloved, he redeems them fully, completely, and everlastingly. And that is why he has promised the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. Because redemption is not complete until that final day when God's people will be glorified both body and soul. And the hope of the resurrection is God's promise to us saying, I am not redeeming just a part of you, but I am redeeming all of you. And it will all come to pass at my appointed time. Because when Jesus returns to earth, there will be a resurrection of everyone. Those who do not belong to him by faith, they will be raised and be, be sentenced to eternal death and misery, cast out of his kingdom forever. But those who have trusted in him, lived for him, our bodies will be raised from the dust and transformed in the twinkling of an eye into immortal flesh of heavenly glory. And then reunited with our souls that have been with him in his heavenly presence as we return with him, if we have died before Jesus returns, or if Jesus returns in our lifetime, then upon his return, both our bodies and souls will be instantaneously transformed into perfected glory. You see, church, God's work of redemption is to take for himself all of you, all of who you are. He will not leave any part of you behind in this fallen world. Christian, understand this clearly. That in Christ, God loves your whole person. Every part of you. All that you are. That's what he has set his love upon. 
And so Christ will come for all of you, all of yourself. And as you live this life, as as a pilgrim in this fallen world, he will remember every hair that has turned gray. He has them all numbered. And he will make them shine like the brightness of the sky above one day. He will remember every sorrow and pain and grief and trial that you have endured as you followed him. And he promises to redeem all of those and mend all of those wounds with his own hands. He will remember every illness you ever had, every disease, every broken bone, every physiological dysfunction, every bodily blemish and frailty, and he will come back for you to redeem it all, that he might vindicate his glory and power to save all of you and bring your redemption to full completion. Because he is the God of the living, and all who live, live to him. Church, until that day comes, let us bear this in mind, and let us live unto him by faith, eagerly awaiting his return, and hanging on every word of his promise. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that you are the God of the living, the God of life eternal, and that even upon this fallen world and sinners who have died, spiritually dead sinners like us, you have bestowed on us the hope of life in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our risen Savior. Thank you for the full assurance of hope in the gospel. How blessed we are to share in Christ, in his inheritance, to be united to him in his life and death and resurrection. And it's with this in mind that we now prepare to take the Lord's Supper as an emblem of our sharing in his inheritance, that we are dining with him, partaking of all of the spoils of his victory as it gives to us and reminds us and reassures us of his body given for us and his blood spilled for us, that all of our hope might rest on him. Oh Lord, would you use these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup to minister to our souls and would you help us to receive them by faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.